uh, in the beginning of a series that we began last week um, looking at what makes up a healthy church. I was reminded when I was a student in high school that we had uh, every year our family would make the annual uh, trip down at the beginning of uh, school to the doctor's office to do our uh, physicals that would get us, you know, okay to do uh, sports and swimming and stuff like that. And and uh, it was something that we had to do every year. We'd go into the doctor. The doctor would do a, a once-over. He would just take a general assessment of of just normalcy. What, is there anything going on that would, uh, you know, uh, make it uh, unwise for for uh, young man, young woman, to participate in sports and other activities. And they're just looking for, uh, for a marks that, that said, yeah, this person is healthy. And, and there are marks that distinguish a church that's healthy from a church that's not healthy. Yes, there, there are marks that distinguish a church from a non-church. But then within the realm of a church... There are healthy churches and there are unhealthy churches. There are sick churches. There are, there are churches that are not operating at 100%, and so they're not as effective as they could be. Uh, they're, they're, uh, they're not reflecting the glory of God uh, the way they, they could be. And uh, what we want here is we want to be a healthy church, do we not? We want to be a healthy church. Uh, we want to ha- take a, a self-assessment here. And so this series we go through the summer, this is our... our um, our spiritual physical for our church? Are we a healthy church? Is there anything that we just have to be convicted of as a church, as a body? Um, or, or is there anything that we just have to bring back to the, to the, the, the front of our minds uh, just to, to remind us this is what we need to make sure is going on at Anchorage Grace Church? And uh, that's what we want to do over the summer. And uh, we looked last week at really one of the most important marks of healthy church, and that is expository preaching. If the church is the foundation of the, the truth, if it's the pillar and support of the truth, if it's founded on truth, and if it believes that the truth is what sanctifies the, the individual believer and the corporate body, the church, then a healthy church is one that preaches and teaches the truth. And so that's part of, of what makes church healthy. And this morning I want to bring a corollary idea, uh, something that undergirds preaching and it, then it flows out of preaching. And that's this, that a healthy church is, is a church that is marked by biblical theology, biblical theology. In other words, a healthy church recognizes that the Bible uh, pre- uh, presents one cohesive message, that, uh, that the parts of the Bible that make up what we know as the 66 books of the Old and the New Testament, that though there is diversity, though there is a variety of authors, though there is uh, uh, an expanse of time in which the Bible was written, uh, some 3,500 years of history that is represented in the, the, the composition of this book, a variety of authors from a variety of backgrounds, variety of cultures, three different languages, and yet... The Bible has one overarching message, that there is, despite the diversity, there is a unity. In other words, the Bible has a point. That's, that's biblical theology. The Bible has a point. I trust you can recognize why this would be a central mark of a healthy church. Because historically, the idea of biblical theology, the idea that you can take this book and, um, and, and find in it a cohesive message that agrees with itself and presents a flow of history that has a goal in mind, has a flow, an end point, someplace where history and time is going to uh, historically in the larger Christendom that has been a contended issue. Liberal Christianity says that biblical theology is impossible. It's impossible because... The Bible, according to a liberal perspective, is nothing but a collection of works written by humans. And if there's one thing that makes us all human is the tendency to err. And so you can't expect uh, numerous authors throughout uh, uh, centuries or even millennia uh, of, of writing to write various books that all come together in, under one volume. And you can't just slap a cover on it, expect it to all agree, uh, to, for it to all agree. That's impossible because it's a human book. So liberal theology says it's not humanly possible to have biblical theology. Not, not, not with the perspective of the Bible being a human book. 
It's impossible. With the turn of the 20th century, going into, um, actually coming out of World War I and World War II, where liberal theology uh, and uh, its, uh, its ancillary features, um, uh, kind of thinking that it could bring in just kind of a golden age of, of, uh, of uh, social prosperity and, and such, really got blown to bits after World War I and World War II when they realized man really is kind of an evil person. And, uh, and so, you know, things got pessimistic and out of that flowed what we tend to call postmodernism. And postmodernism views this book uh, not as, uh, and bi- views biblical theology not necessarily as something that's impossible, but just something that's oppressive, something that's destructive. Because postmodernism says absolute truth is nothing more than one person or one group's grasp for power. It's a way for a person to say, I have the truth and so I can put you under power by determining what is true for you. And so postmodernism promised to relinquish and free and liberate all of us from uh, from the, the, the evil clutches of people like Hitler who wanted to take and what they, the term that they like to call is totalizing, to have a totalizing narrative of the world and history and, and that to them was the epitome of evil, the epitome of authority and oppression that one person or one group of people could totalize history and make everyone view history according to their perspective. And so, of course, under that realm, biblical theology is oppressive. And we shouldn't do it, but uh, the Bible presents an absolutely antithetical perspective. According to 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. And therefore, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Scripture, in other words, is, is not just the product of, of people. It's not just a human book. It's a divine book. And so, despite the diversity, despite the fact that there are numerous uh, individuals who contributed to this book, overall, there is one author, and his name is who? God. It's God-breathed. And, uh, and filling that out, Second Peter 1, verse 20 says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, or, or another way of saying that is one's own initiative. Man did not initiate to write the Bible. And who did then? Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is a book that, yes, was written by men, but it was authored ultimately by God, produced by God, initiated by God, and therefore has one author. And when you have one author, you have cohesion. You have unity. And so the Bible, just by its own self-attestation, says there is the unity to this text. And if it has one author, then we have to understand what is the point of the Bible. And that's really the question that's on the table. If a healthy church is marked by biblical theology, which says that there's unity... In the Bible, there's a unity to the message. What's the point? Because this directly impacts our church. It directly impacts every church, whether or not you believe that there's unity or not, if, if there's cohesion. The Bible lacks cohesion and unity, then um, we'd be tempted to treat it like, uh, like we have seen it treated. For some, the Bible is a... Uh, is nothing but a collection of rules to be followed. We just saw that throughout our, our series in the book of Galatians. It's called legalism. For others, it's a story, stories of, of heroes that are to be emulated and followed. That's moralism. That's the average Sunday school class where the Old Testament in particular, which is where this is uh, most uh, often abused, is, is looked at as a collection of, of stories that teach moral lessons about how we're supposed to act. For others, it's, uh, encouraging, it's a collection of encouraging truths to get us through the week. That's pragmatism, just to, to give us our, our daily dose of Bible so that we can get back to life. And then when we kind of start to spin down, we come back to church, get pumped up again and go out. Some view it as promises of health and wealth and success and happiness. That's the prosperity 
church. That's the prosperity message. That's what this book is all about. And others, it's just strategies for meeting people's physical and psychological needs. It's the social gospel. It's just uh, it's, it's to get us out there um, feeding, feeding the, the hungry and clothing, uh, clothing the, the poor and, and, uh, and healing the sick. And it's not, any, it's not that any of these perspectives are absolutely wrong. Yes, the Bible does have laws and rules to obey. And, and yes, it does have, uh, have, have characters and, and people that are portrayed that, that portray what a life of faith looks like. And, uh, and it, it, does, uh, it does have uh, truths that, that encourage us as we are, or we are down and, and, and we are uh, discouraged. And it does promise us that through obedience and through faith that we will find joy in this life. But, um, but none of these things represent the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is not all these things. All these types of perspectives underscore what happens when we read the Bible and fail to grasp the overarching point. And so that's, that brings us to the question, what is the point of the Bible? And uh, what's amazing, I, I didn't even realize this until I was sitting there and Steve Hatter mentioned VBS and suddenly it dawned on me, um, the, the kids that are going to be here all week going through VBS, the, the theme, do you know what the theme is? Time lab. Seeing Jesus or discovering Jesus from eternity past to eternity future. And that right there is the point of the Bible. Jesus is the point of the Bible. I want to briefly introduce this and then show you by looking at the Bible from a a comprehensive whole. But just to start us off, maybe turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And there John, or uh, Jesus makes this statement in verse 39... where he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus' own attestation, his own direct statement is that the, the Bible, yes, the Bible has in it the truths that lead a person to eternal life, but if you miss the point, and you don't see that it is Jesus to whom the Bible speaks of, then you miss where eternal life is really found. It is found in the person and the work of Jesus. And it really, there is one place that above all else really illustrates this the, the most, and that is the, the 24th chapter of John. So turn back a couple of chapters, a couple of pages in your Bible to the end of, or not 24, John, 24, Luke, Luke 24. This is, a, as you know, a well-familiar passage where Jesus meets and discusses with uh, two of the disciples who are traveling on uh, the road to Emmaus. They speak to him. They don't recognize who he is. But they speak to him and, and tell him all the things that had happened about him, not knowing who they're talking to. But when you get down to uh, verse 25... This is where Jesus answers them. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Man, what a seminary education that would be, right? I mean, we're about to, in a few months, begin classes for the Anchorage uh, location of the Master Seminary. And uh, men who, uh, who go through seminary three, four, five, I knew people who were there 10 years. <laughs> those, were, uh, those were the guys that had spent 40 years in, a, in a secular, edu- or secular work and then said, I, the Lord's calling me into ministry. And then they're realizing, I haven't been to school and. 40 years. What in the world have I done? So they took the, the really long route. But this is, this is a walk to Emmaus. And the Lord systematically takes these disciples through 
and opens their eyes to be able to see how the whole of the Old Testament was pointing towards him so that he could ask that question. He could ask the question, was it not necessary? And the only way to answer the question, was it necessary, is to understand that the Bible was moving towards the point. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die and then to rise from the dead. Again, after he leaves them, he appears to his disciples, beginning in verse 36. Scares them half to death in verse, uh, verse 36. Peace be with you, he says. They were startled and frightened. Thought they saw a spirit. He was asking them why they were troubled, why their hearts were doubting. But then in verse 44, he says then this. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which is uh, the the beginning portion of the, the Jewish canon, which is called the writings. So the whole of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures And said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So the point of the Bible, according to Jesus, is Jesus. And if you read through the Bible, if you have a Bible reading plan and you start in January and you end in December and you miss that point, you've missed the point of the Bible. The Bible has what theologians call a meta-narrative, an overarching narrative that encompasses and explains all of its parts. And so you can see why this affects preaching. This affects what the church does and why it does what it does. We'll get into more of that a minute. This is why Paul said in, um, in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, when he wanted to boil down his ministry and why he preached and what he preached, he said in 1 Corinthians one twenty two, where Jews demand signs, Greek, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ That was the essence of his ministry. Not that that was the only thing he ever taught. As you can see, his writing ministry, his epistles, span the whole of the Christian life. He didn't just teach on that, but when you boil it all down, that was the driving message. We preach Christ crucified because it has everything to do with salvation. It has everything to do with sanctification. It has everything to do with glorification. It has to do with what God has been doing from beginning to end. The Bible is God's revelation of who he is, how he has acted in human history to rescue and restore a people for himself through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the message of the Bible. And what I want to do, really, this is kind of a, a buckle up and get ready time. Okay, we're going to do biblical theology this morning. You ready? We're going we're to do a fast track through the Bible. And, uh, and there's a lot of places that we could stop and, and hang out. Uh, tourist stops, if you will, if we're on a, if we're on a long jur- journey across, uh, across the U.S., we, we, could, we could stop at this place, we could stop at that place and hang out for a long time, uh, but we're not going to do that. We're going to get the, the full flow because we want to see the big picture of what this book is really about. This is your version, adults. If you've never been to VBS, this is your VBS, okay? This is, this is Jesus from eternity past to eternity future, uh, just in case you've never been to VBS before. Now you get to. Congratulations. We'll get you a certificate later. But we obviously have to begin at the beginning, so let's uh, go back to Genesis chapter 1. Because in the beginning, we see God... In absolute power, God in absolute sovereignty, and He has created everything. He is sovereign. He has created everything, and so He is over everything. And He's created it all by simply speaking with a word. 
Let there be light. So he's sovereign over everything. He's created everything. He owns everything because he has created it. But he has done so in such an incredible way that demonstrates how powerful he is and that he has been able to create out of nothing with just a word. He is sovereign, he is powerful, and he is the ultimate ruler, the ultimate king. Psalm 103 that we read this morning in verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. The Lord is sovereign. He is king and he rules over his creation, but he has decided to do it by means of man. Mankind, the pinnacle of his creation. So in verse 26 of chapter 1, he says, let let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion. There's a royal term right there, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the uh, the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God created man as his image, as his representative. He created man to represent him in who he was, in his character, in his being, as well as to represent him by being his representatives, his vice regents. God was going to rule the earth by placing man on the earth, having him fill the whole earth and so fill the whole earth with his glory. And man, God was going to rule through man. That was how God set it up from the very beginning. He places man in a garden in chapter 2 with the charge to, um, to cultivate it, to keep, the, to keep it, to grow, to till the soil. Man had intimate fellowship with God. He walked with God. And the entirety of creation is given on the very end, the last verse of chapter 1. This overall label, it was very good. God created a, a universe with man at the center, man representing him to all the rest of creation, and it was all very good. But it's not long. By chapter 3, we're introduced to the arch enemy. The arch enemy of God, the arch enemy of man who will appear again and again and again and again all the way from beginning to end. Represented by a serpent who is said to be more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And this serpent tempts Adam, he tempts Eve to distrust God's goodness. You can't trust him. He's withholding from you something that's good. And they look and they see and they believe. Yeah, those do look good. I do deserve that. God isn't very good by saying I can't have that. And so God's representative, his vice regents rebel. They rebel against the sovereign God who created everything by a word. rebel against God's goodness, they rebel against God's word, his sovereignty. And catastrophe results, just catastrophic consequences. They're exiled from paradise. They're cut off. They're disfellowshipped from God. There's curses. There's frustrations. Man's not going to be able to work the ground and, and fulfill his mandate the way he should. Woman is going to, uh, to, to endure pain as she tries to fulfill her mandate to fill the earth, to procreate, to have children and offspring. Creation's not very good anymore, but there's a glimmer of hope. There's a glimmer of hope in what uh, theologians call the proto-evangelium. Say that ten times fast. Chapter 3, verse 15. In the midst of these curses, there's this glimmer of light And it becomes the seedbed of a promise that's going to thread throughout the entirety of the Old Testament until it finally explodes in the culmination in the New Testament. Verse 15. It says, I'll put enmity 
between you and the woman, meaning the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. So there will be perpetual war that will continue on uh, between uh, the woman and her descendants and, and, and the serpent, Satan, and his descendants. There will be perpetual war, perpetual animosity, but ultimately this is what's going to happen. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, ultimate victory belongs to God because God is going to provide a descendant of the woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent, who is going to to deal with this and reconcile mankind back to God. And that forms the seedbed of this overarching question, this seed promise. Who is the seed? Who is, is this him? Is this him? Is this him? All along the way, and the, the, as we progress through the text, the, the, the focus is going to narrow and narrow and narrow and narrow until it's finally absolutely obvious who this seed is. And that's where the great irony is going to come in. As obvious as it is, nobody will notice. Nobody will recognize it. And it's all according to the plan of God. This promise is what Paul even talked about as a background for his uh, words in Acts 26 when he says, I stand now here on trial, verse 6, because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise. The promise that I would argue is even greater than the promise we're going to see made to Abraham because it goes back all the way to the very first promise. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and begins from there. Despite this hope, sin spreads. It spreads like a fever. It explodes. By Genesis 6, the earth is filled with violence. It's filled with wickedness. Wickedness is in everybody's hearts. And so God destroys the, the world by a flood, except he saves one man and his family. Humanity is saved through the, the, through, 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 through the deliverance of one man and his family named Noah. Noah gets off the ark. God makes a covenant with him. A covenant that's really boiled down in, in Genesis 8.21. He says, The Lord smelled the smoothing, soothing aroma that, uh, of the sacrifice that Noah had uh, offered. And he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of mankind, even though the inclination of their hearts is evil from childhood on. I will never again destroy, destroy everything that lives as I have done. So ultimately... God is purposing, he's saying, the ultimate end of man, the ultimate end of this world is not going to be curse, it's going to be blessing. My heart is to bless, not to curse. And even though mankind continues to rebel, you see that in the Tower of Babel, where mankind doesn't want to follow God. He wants to make a name for himself. And so he rebels, he rebels, he he wants to make a tall tower. He says, let's make a name for ourselves. God scatters them. Judges them in that way, but God's going to make a name for himself and he's going to use one man named Abraham. That brings us to chapter 12. I'm going to spend a lot of our time in Genesis and then we're going to launch through the rest of the Old Testament. But there is so much in Genesis that, that uh, paves the way for, for, for the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament that we have to, to begin here. Genesis 12. God calls this man named Abram. He was a pagan man from Ur of the Chaldeans, and he was called out of, his, uh, out of his homeland. And God gives him a promise, Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you. I will, if, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you hear the heart of God, the purposes of God, even what we saw in the Noahic covenant. God wants to bless, and we're finding out he's going to bless. His, his heart is to bless all the peoples of the earth, and he's going to do it through the descendants of one man, Abraham. Already. 
we're focusing. We're going from the seed of the woman to maybe Noah. I mean, after all, he restarted the human race. (laughs) We're all descendants of Noah and his sons. All the way to Abraham. The focus is narrowing. Kings are going to come from Abraham, he finds out later in Genesis 17. So by the time we get to the end of Genesis, Genesis 49 verse 10, Jacob makes this statement. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So now already we've, the, 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 the question, the focus of the, of the scripture is narrowing. Now the focus is all the way down to the tribe of Judah, just one tribe out of 12. By the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob and his family, 70 persons in all, are living in Egypt. Protected there by the Lord, they grow into a, into a, a, a vast people, but they come under oppression. They start to cry out to the Lord for deliverance. The Lord hears them, remembers his covenant with uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and rescues them. Rescues them with a mighty deliverance, an incredible miracle, leads them out through the Red Sea. But more than that, he also rescues them in another way through the blood of a Passover lamb. Smeared over the doorposts, protecting them from the judgment that's sweeping through the city. All, all pictures, all, all flashes of something greater to come, something anticipated, something that they need to remember. He brings them out of Egypt and he enters into a covenant with them. This brings us into the latter half of Exodus and on into Leviticus, where he gives them laws. It gives them laws that separate them from the nations, that allow them to reflect the holiness of God so that everybody will know this is my people and this is their God. He gives them, he's giving them a land, a little tiny land bridge that only, some places only 30 miles wide that separates and and bridges two continents, Africa and Asia, so that everybody who wants to go in between uh, uh, Africa and Asia has to pass through this tiny little land bridge and come into contact with God's people and the law. He's going to live among them. He's going to make his his dwelling among them. He gives them a sacrificial system as a way for them to be able to come and be accepted and have fellowship with him despite their sinfulness. And then he calls them to a special purpose. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You, Israel through the covenant that I'm making with you, through the laws that I'm giving you, are going to sanctify yourself from the rest of the nations to make yourself different. And you're going to be the conduit through which I'm going to bless the world. Does that sound familiar? That's the Abrahamic covenant. God is going to to accomplish what he was going to do through Abraham, through Abraham's seed, Israel. They're going to be the conduit of blessing as long as they obey, as long as they keep the covenant and the commandments. But as time unfolds, you know the story. That doesn't happen, does it? The book of Numbers, the first generation, the generation that saw everything that God had done for them to get them out of Egypt, they rebelled, they refused to go into the land, they die in the wilderness. A new generation rises up, enters into the land through the leadership of Joshua. But by the time of the book of Judges, Israel and the world are virtually indistinguishable. They act just like the world. They chased after foreign gods. They act just like the world. They cry out for help. They come under oppression. God rescues them time and time again, judge after judge after judge, and as the judges come, they just keep on digressing in morality. Even the judges are getting worse and worse. And finally, book of Samuel comes, and and uh, Israel is, is done with the judges. Now they want to be like all the nations. They want a king. They want a king so they can be like all the nations, except they don't want the king that God wants. God, God wants to raise up a king that's after his own heart. And so he raises up a young shepherd boy from 
the town of Bethlehem. The son of a man named Jesse, his name is David, and he's from the tribe of Judah. What do you know? You see how it's narrowing. Now we've, now we've gone from the seed of the woman to Noah to Abraham to Israel to Judah to David. God makes a covenant with David. It basically says, and it's a promise, David's throne is going to endure forever and he will always have a son to sit on the throne. Second Samuel 7 kind of outlines this. Beginning in verse 8, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I will have uh, been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and to plant them so that they may dwell in, a pl- in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, a dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to, a, to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So here is a permanent promise that God has determined to rule and to accomplish his purposes now, not just through Israel, but specifically he is going to rule mediated through David and his sons. God's going to rule his people. He's going to rule over the nations, mediating through the Davidic king. And these kind of hopes end up reverberating all throughout the Old Testament. So when David dies, Solomon raises up, and everybody's thinking maybe he's the one. But he's not. Solomon's heart's pulled away. He accumulates wealth. Marries hundreds of foreign wives. He worships foreign gods. And so the kingdom gets ripped from him. Ripped in two, north and south. And from there it just goes downhill. The book of Kings is a sad, sad tale of the people of God descending and descending and descending. And finally God pushes them out. Just like Adam and Eve got pushed out, got exposed, Exiled from paradise, God's people get exiled from their own land. 722 B.C., Assyria takes over, takes northern Israel. A few hundred years later, Babylon comes along. And yet, there's hope. There's hope. God gives hope of some promises, despite the exile, despite where they're at. And all is not lost. God's going to bring his people back into their land. He's going to reestablish them. He's going to raise up another David to be their king. He's going to make a new covenant with them that deals with their sins permanently, deals with their hard hearts. He's even going to make, according to Isaiah, a new heavens and a new earth. He's moving that direction. He's going to make things right. But the question is, How? And there's this mysterious figure that's mingled in with these promises called the servant of the Lord. David's going to come. He's going to rule over his people again. But there's this other person, this servant of Yahweh. He's going to be a descendant of David. He's going to bring Israel back to the Lord. He's going to bring salvation to Israel and the nations. But he's going to do it by being crushed to death for the transgressions of his people. You hear the anticipation. The tension of the Old Testament is palpable. Who and when? When is this going to happen, Lord? And then 400 years of silence. 400 years unless in, of God not speaking, not communicating, not revealing to his people. From the time of the exile and the ending of the writing until the king arrives.
baby is born in an obscure little town to an obscure family. And everything about the birth of this baby, his birth, his origins, his lineage, all identifies him. He, this has got to be the one. This has got to be the one. Even his name says who he is. Matthew one twenty one. She shall bear a son and you shall name his, him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. This is the one. Matthew identifies him as the son of David. He's the, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the one who's, who's going to sit on the throne and realize all of the promises that God has made. Mark identifies him as the servant of the Lord. He's the one that's going to give his, his, himself as a ransom for many. Luke identifies him as the son of man, the second Adam, who came to succeed where the first Adam had failed. John identifies him as the Son of God, the Word who was with God and was God and created the world and now has become flesh and dwelt among us. This is the one. This is the one that we've been waiting for. The devil tries to disqualify him, tries to tempt him just like Adam and Eve in the garden, just like Israel in the wilderness, but Jesus prevails where both Adam and Israel failed he proves himself to be the true and faithful son, the better Adam, the true Israelite. And then he begins to preach. He calls him to repentance. He calls him. He says, the kingdom is coming. You have to get ready. He shows himself to be who exactly he says he is, the promised Messiah. He calms the sea. He's got authority over creation. He drives out demons. He's got authority over the, de- the demonic, demonic realm. He, he heals the sick. He's got authority over disease, and he forgives people. Remember the Pharisees, only God can pronounce forgiveness. But Jesus wasn't the king they expected. He didn't come to overthrow political enemies. He didn't come just to simply meet their physical needs. He came to deal with their spiritual needs, their sin. He was bringing a kingdom that was not his own. John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world, right? And even his own disciples were confused. And so, as John 1, verse 11 put it, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The seed question had finally been answered. When, who, when is this person going to write? Who is this seed going to be? Who is going to, uh, to, to, to give us victory, to, to free us from our sin, to, to finally realize what God has been promising and promising for centuries and centuries and even millennia? And the answer was right in front of them. It, it did, they didn't see it. They rejected him. And they sent him to the cross. The way forward for Jesus was rejection by his people, death on a Roman cross, Yes, he was pronounced, uh, he was promised, he was the promised Davidic king. But he was also the suffering servant. They thought he was stricken by God, but in reality, he was being stricken for them. All the animal sacrifices that his people had performed over centuries throughout the Old Testament history and even on into the, the, the time of, of, uh, of Jesus, they were all anticipating him, so that he, as he was walking over from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem to be arrested, he was walking over the, the Kidron River during the time of the Passover, and during that time, that little Kidron River would have been flowing bright red with the blood of all the Passover lambs that were being slaughtered, the Passover lamb, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. But some believed, some hoped, some, some trusted. And this was God's plan all along. I love, I love the, the words of, of Peter in his uh, Pentecost sermon in, ver, in Acts 2, verse 22. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That is to say, you thought you, you, knew you were in control, uh, but, but really... God had this planned all along, and he did, all the way back 
in the beginning, right? And God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. Jesus was going to rise from the dead and everything changed. Everything changed from there. The t- disciples who were timid, who, who were scattered at his death suddenly became boldened. They preached boldly, whether or not it's, it's Peter preaching boldly at, at Pentecost or by, by the end of Acts you get and you see uh, that, uh, that Paul has gone all the way to Rome and he is preaching in Rome the gospel just like what Jesus said. He was sending them out. So the book of Acts is nothing but a, a, a chronicle of the explosion of a God-empowered message. Jesus is the one. Turn to him. The New Testament letters are all written to the people who are saved out of that ministry, you and I included. Whether it's the letters of Paul, Peter, James, John, Jude, these all basically talk about the same thing. They unpack who Jesus is. They explain who he is and what he's done. And then they explain how, in light of what he's done and who he is, we are to live out in this life and anticipate and, hurt and, and have encouragement and hope for what's to come. It's all about Jesus. It all, it all culminates and points to and anticipates and draws and, 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 uh, and launches out of Christ. So that the final message of, of this book scattered throughout the whole Bible is not only was Jesus coming, not only was he's going to die, but he's going to return. He's going to return. Revelation 5.9 probably sums it up the best. Singing this song, a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and nation and people, and you have made them a kingdom and a priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. He is the lamb slain, ransoming the people by his blood. He's the judge who's coming to mete out punishment to the wicked. He's the warrior that's going to give victory for God. He's the king who's going to reign forever. And so God's working towards a culmination to history. At the beginning, we saw God ruling and reigning over his creation in Genesis 1. By the end, by Revelation 21 and 22, God is ruling and reigning over a new creation in a new Jerusalem with a temple that is God and God's people are dwelling with him in peace. There's no tears anymore. The fall, the curse has been lifted. The fall has been dealt with. Your sins have been forgiven. You see that trajectory. You see that despite the diversity, despite all of the the, the books that, that are in this Bible, there is this overarching flow, this meta-narrative, this, this arc. And no matter where you're at in it, you are somewhere on that arc. And so you can understand how this affects preaching, why this reflects back on what we learned last week. In, in other words, one, th- one way to put it is there are no standalone sermons. Because even if you, were, if you have a sermon that isn't part of a sermon series, it's still part of, of the message of the Bible and still, it still fits within the, the overarching point of, of the Bible and it, and it better lead back to it. And when it doesn't, you have a problem and that's what we call not expositional preaching. <laughs> See, it affects preaching. It affects evangelism. We are living in, uh, in a time where the fastest demographic in our country is uh, what are called the nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, those who have no religious affiliation, the fastest demographic growing in our country, the nuns. So we're living in a time where you can't expect 
to be able to evangelize and interact with an individual and just assume that they have some semblance of understanding of the things that have to do with the Bible. So it's not as simple in, in 21st century America to just, to just uh, approach somebody with the Romans road or to talk about the four spiritual principles. It's not as simple as that anymore because really the Bible is presenting a, total, a totalizing narrative. You're, you're having to view all of history as having a point. And that's why, if you remember Jesus' words in, Matthew, in Luke 24, 44, he said that these are my words, and I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. We have to take this totalizing message, this broad, overarching understanding that there is a point to history. There is a a goal where God is pointing everything towards, and it is the person and work of Jesus. From beginning to end, God has been working throughout history for one purpose. And that is, that, is what, that is the message that you bring. It's not as simple as just the Romans road. You have to, to hit the reset button on the minds of millennials and post-millennials, if I can use that phrase. I'm not quite sure what they call the newest generations anymore. The last count, I think we have to go back to like triple B or, you know, we were done with generation X and Y and Z. But you, you have to hit the reset button on the way they think. And biblical theology is one of the answers to that question. We talk about churches being relevant. This is relevant because this explains history. We want to be a church that digs deep into the Word of God. We want to be a church that is healthy, that is marked by health. We want to continue to examine the trees you know, to, to look deep, to dig deep, but we also don't want to lose sight of the forest. And that's what biblical theology does for us as a church.